Chapter 9 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 9 Developments. Mr. Grice called about nine o'clock the next morning. Well, said he, what about the visitor who came to see me last night? Like and unlike, I answered. Nothing could induce me to say he is the man we want, and yet I would not dare to swear he was not. You are in doubt, then, concerning him? I am. Mr. Grice bowed, reminded me of the inquest, and left. Nothing was said about the hat. At ten o'clock I prepared to go to the place designated by him. I had never attended an inquest in my life, and felt a little flurried in consequence. But by the time I had tied the strings of my bonnet, the despised bonnet, which, by the way, I did not return to Moore's, I had conquered this weakness and acquired a demeanor more in keeping with my very important position as chief witness in a serious police investigation. I had sent for a carriage to take me, and I rode away from my house amid the shouts of some half-dozen boys collected on the curbstone. But I did not allow myself to feel dashed by this publicity. On the contrary, I held my head as erect as nature intended, and my back kept the line my good health warrants. The path of duty has its thorny passages, but it is, for strong minds like mine, to ignore them. Promptly at ten o'clock I entered the room reserved for the inquest, and was ushered to the seat appointed me. Though never a self-conscious woman, I could not but be aware of the many eyes that followed me, and endeavored so to demean myself that there should be no question as to my respectable standing in the community. This I considered due to the memory of my father, who was very much in my thoughts that day. The coroner was already in his seat when I entered, and though I did not perceive the good face of Mr. Grice anywhere in the vicinity, I had no doubt he was within earshot. Of the other people I took small note, save of the honest scrubwoman, whose red face and anxious eyes under a preposterous bonnet, which did not come from La Mole's, I caught vague glimpses as the crowd between us surged to and fro. None of the Van Burnhams were visible, but this did not necessarily mean that they were absent. Indeed, I was very sure from certain indications that more than one member of the family could be seen in the small room connecting with the large one in which we witnesses sat with the jury. The policeman, Carroll, was the first man to talk. He told of my stopping him on his beat and of his entrance into Mr. Van Burnham's house with the scrubwoman. He gave the details of his discovery of the dead woman's body on the parlor floor, and insisted that no one, here he looked very hard at me, had been allowed to touch the body till relief had come to him from headquarters. Mrs. Boppert, the scrubwoman, followed him, and if she was watched by no one else in that room, she was watched by me. Her manner before the coroner was no more satisfactory, according to my notion, than it had been in Mr. Van Burnham's parlor. 
she gave a very perceptible start when they spoke her name and looked quite scared when the bible was held out towards her but she took the oath notwithstanding and with her testimony the inquiry began in earnest what is your name asked the coroner as this was something she could not help knowing she uttered the necessary words glibly though in a way that showed she resented his impertinence in asking her what he already knew where do you live and what do you do for a living rapidly followed she replied that she was a scrubwoman and cleaned people's houses and having said this she assumed a very dogged air which i thought strange enough to raise a question in the minds of those who watched her but no one else seemed to regard it as anything but the embarrassment of ignorance how long have you known the van burnham family the coroner went on two years sir come next christmas have you often done work for them i cleaned the house twice a year fall and spring why were you at the house two days ago to scrub the kitchen floors sir and put the pantries in order had you received notice to do so yes sir through mr franklin van burnham and was that the first day of your work there no sir i had been there all the day before you don't speak loud enough objected the coroner remember that everyone in this room wants to hear you she looked up and with a frightened air surveyed the crowd about her publicity evidently made her most uncomfortable and her voice sank rather than rose where did you get the key of the house and by what door did you enter i went in at the basement sir and i got the key at mr van burnham's agent in day street i had to go for it sometimes they send it to me but not this time and now relate your meeting with the policeman on wednesday morning in front of mr van burnham's house she tried to tell her story but she made awkward work of it and they had to ply her with questions to get at the smallest fact but finally she managed to repeat what we already knew how she went with the policeman into the house and how they stumbled upon the dead woman in the parlor further than this they did not question her and i amelia butterworth had to sit in silence and see her go back to her seat redder than before but with a strangely satisfied air that told me she had escaped more easily than she had expected and yet mr gryce had been warned that she knew more than appeared and by one in whom he seemed to have placed some confidence the doctor was called next his testimony was most important and contained a surprise for me and more than one surprise for the others after a short preliminary examination he was requested to state how long the woman had been dead when he was called to examine her more than twelve and less than eighteen hours was his quiet reply had the rigor mortis set in no but it began very soon after did you examine the wounds made by the falling shelves and the vases that tumbled with them i did will you describe them he did so and now there was a pause in the coroner's question which roused us all to its importance which of these many serious wounds was in your opinion the cause of her death the witness was accustomed to such scenes and was perfectly at home in them surveying the coroner with a respectful air 
he turned slowly towards the jury and answered in a slow and impressive manner i feel ready to declare sirs that none of them did she was not killed by the falling of the cabinet upon her not killed by the falling shelves why not were they not sufficiently heavy or did they not strike her in a vital place they were heavy enough and they struck her in a way to kill her if she had not already been dead when they fell upon her as it was they simply bruised a body from which life had already departed as this was putting it very plainly many people of the crowd who had not been acquainted with these facts previously showed their interest in a very unmistakable manner but the coroner ignoring these symptoms of growing excitement hastened to say this is a very serious statement you are making doctor if she did not die from the wounds inflicted by the objects which fell upon her from what cause did she die can you say that her death was a natural one and that the falling of the shelves was merely an unhappy accident following it no sir her death was not natural she was killed but not by the falling cabinet killed and not by the cabinet how then was there another wound upon her which you regard as mortal yes sir suspecting that she had perished from other means than appeared i made a most rigid examination of her body when i discovered under the hair in the nape of her neck a minute spot which upon probing i found to be the end of a small thin point of steel it had been thrust by a careful hand into the most vulnerable part of the body and death must have ensued at once this was too much for certain excitable persons present and a momentary disturbance arose which however was nothing to that in my own breast so so it was her neck that had been pierced and not her heart mr gryce had allowed us to think it was the latter but it was not this fact which stupefied me but the skill and diabolical coolness of the man who had inflicted this death thrust after order had been restored which i will say was very soon the coroner with an added gravity of tone went on with his questions did you recognize this bit of steel as belonging to any instrument in the medical profession no it was of too untempered steel to have been manufactured for any thrusting or cutting purposes it was of the commonest kind and had broken short off in the wound it was only the end that i found have you this end with you the point i mean which you found embedded in the base of the dead woman's brain i have sir and he handed it over to the jury as they passed it along the coroner remarked later we will show you the remaining portion of this instrument of death which did not tend to allay the general excitement seeing this the coroner humored the growing interest by pushing on his inquiries doctor he asked are you prepared to say how long a time elapsed between the infliction of this fatal wound and those which disfigured her no sir not exactly but some little time some little time when the murderer was in the house only ten minutes all looked their surprise and as if the coroner had divined this feeling of general curiosity he leaned forward and emphatically repeated more than ten minutes 
The doctor, who had every appearance of realizing the importance of his reply, did not hesitate. Evidently his mind was quite made up. Yes, more than ten minutes. This was the shock I received from his testimony. I remembered what the clock had revealed to me, but I did not move a muscle of my face. I was learning self-control under these repeated surprises. "'This is an unexpected statement,' remarked the coroner. "'What reasons have you to urge in explanation of this?' "'Very simple and very well-known ones, at least among the profession. "'There was too little blood seen for the wounds to have been inflicted before death "'or within a few minutes after it. "'Had the woman been living when they were made, "'or even had she been dead but a short time,' the floor would have been deluged with the blood gushing from so many and such serious injuries. But the effusion was slight, so slight that I noticed it at once, and came to the conclusions mentioned before I found the mark of the stab that occasioned death. I see, I see, and was that the reason you called in two neighboring physicians to view the body before it was removed from the house? Yes, sir, in so important a matter I wish to have my judgment confirmed. And these physicians were Dr. Campbell of 110 East Street and Dr. Jacobs of Lexington Avenue. Are these gentlemen here? inquired the coroner of an officer who stood near. They are, sir. Very well, we will now proceed to ask one or two more questions of this witness. You have told us that even had the woman been dead but a few minutes, when she received these contusions, the floor would have been more or less deluged by her blood. What reason have you for this statement? This, that in a few minutes, let us say ten, since that number has been used, the body has not had time to cool, nor have the blood vessels had sufficient opportunity to stiffen, so as to prevent the free effusion of blood. Is a body still warm at ten minutes after death? It is. So that your conclusions were logical deductions from well-known facts? Certainly, sir. A pause of some duration followed. When the coroner again proceeded, it was to remark, The case is complicated by these discoveries, but we must not allow ourselves to be daunted by them. Let me ask you, if you had found any marks upon this body which might aid in its identification. 1. A slight scar on the left ankle. What kind of a scar? Describe it. It was such as a burn might leave. In shape, it was long and narrow, and it ran up the limb from the ankle bone. Was it on the right foot? No, on the left. Did you call the attention of anyone to this mark during or after your examination? Yes, I showed it to Mr. Grice, the detective, and to my two coadjutors, and I spoke of it to Mr. Howard Van Burnham, son of the gentleman in whose house the body was found. It was the first time this young gentleman's name had been mentioned, and it made my blood run cold to see how many sidelong looks and expressive shrugs it caused in the motley assemblage. But I had no time for sentiment. The inquiry was growing too interesting. And why, asked the coroner, did you mention it to this young man in preference to others? Because Mr. Grice requested me to. 
because the family, as well as the young man himself, had evinced some apprehension lest the deceased might prove to be his missing wife, and this seemed a likely way to settle the question. And did it, did he acknowledge it to be a mark he remembered to have seen on his wife? He said she had such a scar, but he would not acknowledge the deceased to be his wife. Did he see the scar? No, he would not look at it. Did you invite him to? I did, but he showed no curiosity. Doubtless thinking that silence would best emphasize this fact, which certainly was an astonishing one, the coroner waited a minute, but there was no silence. An indescribable murmur from a great many lips filled up the gap. I felt a movement of pity for this proud family, whose good name was thus threatened in the person of this young gentleman. Doctor, continued the coroner, as soon as the murmur had subsided, did you notice the color of the woman's hair? It was light brown. Did you sever a lock? Have you a sample of this hair here to show us? I have, sir. At Mr. Grice's suggestion, I cut off two small locks. One I gave him, and the other I brought here. Let me see it. The doctor passed it up, and in sight of everyone present, the coroner tied a string around it and attached a ticket to it. This is to prevent all mistake, explained this very methodical functionary, laying the lock aside on the table in front of him. Then he turned again to the witness. Doctor, we are indebted to you for your valuable testimony, and as you are a busy man, we will now excuse you. Let Dr. Jacobs be called. As this gentleman, as well as the witness who followed him, merely corroborated the statements of the other, and made it an accepted fact that the shelves had fallen upon the body of the girl some time after the first wound had been inflicted, I will not attempt to repeat their testimony. The question now agitating me was whether they would endeavor to fix the time at which the shelves fell by the evidence furnished by the clock. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Important Evidence Evidently not, for the next words I heard were, Miss Amelia Butterworth. I had not expected to be called so soon, and was somewhat flustered by the suddenness of the summons, for I am only human. But I rose with suitable composure, and passed to the place indicated by the coroner, in my usual straightforward manner, heightened only by a sense of the importance of my position, both as a witness and a woman whom the once famous Mr. Grice had taken more or less into his confidence. My appearance seemed to awaken an interest for which I was not prepared. I was just thinking how well my name had sounded, uttered in the sonorous tones of the coroner, and how grateful I ought to be for the courage I had displayed in substituting the genteel name of Amelia for the weak and sentimental one of Araminta, when I became conscious that the eyes directed towards me were filled with an expression not easy to understand. I should not like to call it admiration, and I will not call it amusement, and yet it seemed to be made up of both. While I was puzzling myself over it, the first question came. As my examination before the coroner only brought out the facts already related, I will not burden you with a detailed account of it. One portion alone may be of interest. 
I was being questioned in regard to the appearance of the couple I had seen entering the Van Burnham mansion, when the coroner asked if the young woman's step was light or if it betrayed hesitation. I replied, no hesitation. She moved quickly, almost gaily. And he was more moderate, but there was no signification in that. He may have been older. No theories, Miss Butterworth. It is facts we are after. Now do you know that he was older? No, sir. Did you get any idea as to his age? The impression he made was that of being a young man. And his height? was medium, and his figure was slight and elegant. He moved as a gentleman moves, and of this I can speak with great positiveness. Do you think you could identify him, Miss Butterworth, if you should see him? I hesitated, as I perceived that the whole swaying mass eagerly awaited my reply. I even turned my head, because I saw others doing so, but I regretted this when I found that I, as well as others, was glancing towards the door beyond which the Van Burnhams were supposed to sit. To cover up the false move I had made, for I had no wish yet to center suspicions upon anybody, I turned my face quickly back to the crowd and declared in as emphatic a tone as I could command. I have thought I could do so if I saw him under the same circumstances as those in which my first impression was made but lately I have begun to doubt even that. I should never dare to trust to my memory in this regard. The coroner looked disappointed, and so did the people around me. It is a pity, remarked the coroner, that you did not see more plainly, and now how did these persons gain an entrance into the house? I answered in the most succinct way possible. I told them how he had used a door-key in entering, of the length of time the man stayed inside, and of his appearance on going away. I also related how I came to call a policeman to investigate the matter the next day, and corroborated the statements of this official as to the appearance of the deceased at the time of discovery. And there my examination stopped. I was not asked any questions tending to bring out the cause of the suspicion I entertained against the scrubwoman, nor were the discoveries I had made in conjunction with Mr. Grice inquired into. It was just as well, perhaps, but I would never approve of a piece of work done for me in this slipshod fashion. A recess now followed. Why it was thought necessary I cannot imagine, unless the gentleman wished to smoke. Had they felt as much interest in this murder as I did, they would not have wanted bite or sup until the dreadful question was settled. There being a recess, I improved the opportunity by going into the restaurant nearby where one can get very good buns and coffee at a reasonable price. But I could have done without them. The next witness, to my astonishment, was Mr. Grice. As he stepped forward, heads were craned and many women rose in their seats to get a glimpse of the noted detective. I showed no curiosity myself, for by this time I knew his features well, but I did feel a great satisfaction in seeing him before the coroner. For now, thought I, we shall hear something worth our attention. But his examination, though interesting, was not complete. 
the coroner remembered his promise to show us the other end of the steel point which had been broken off in the dead girl's brain limited himself to such inquiries as brought out the discovery of the broken hat-pin in mr van burnham's parlor register no mention was made by the witness of any assistance which he may have received in making this discovery a fact which caused me to smile men are so jealous of any interference in their affairs the end found in the register and the end which the coroner's physician had drawn from the poor woman's head were both handed to the jury and it was interesting to note how each man made his little effort to fit the two ends together and the looks they interchanged as they found themselves successful without doubt and in the eyes of all the instrument of death had been found but what an instrument the felt hat which had been discovered under the body was now produced and the one hole made by a similar pin examined then mr gryce was asked if any other pin had been picked up from the floor of the room and he replied no and the fact was established in the minds of all present that the young woman had been killed by a pin taken from her own hat a subtle and cruel crime the work of calculating intellect was the coroner's comment as he allowed the detective to sit down which expression of opinion i thought reprehensible as tending to prejudice the jury against the only person at present suspected the inquiry now took a turn the name of miss ferguson was called who was miss ferguson it was a new name to most of us and her face when she rose only added to the general curiosity it was the plainest face imaginable yet it was neither a bad nor an intelligent one as i studied it and noted the nervous contraction that disfigured her lip i could not but be sensible of my blessings i am not handsome myself though there have been persons who've called me so but neither am i ugly and in contrast to this woman well i will say nothing i only know that after seeing her i felt profoundly grateful to a kind providence as for the poor woman herself she knew she was no beauty but she had become so accustomed to seeing the eyes of other people turn away from her face that beyond the nervous twitching of which i have spoken she showed no feeling what is your full name and where do you live asked the coroner my name is susan ferguson and i live in haddam connecticut was her reply uttered in such soft and beautiful tones that every one was astonished it was like a stream of limpid water flowing from a most unsightly looking rock excuse the metaphor i do not often indulge do you keep boarders i do a few sir such as my house will accommodate whom have you had with you this summer i knew what her answer would be before she uttered it so did a hundred others but they showed their knowledge in different ways i did not show mine at all i have had with me said she a mr and mrs van burnham from new york mr howard van burnham is his full name if you wish me to be explicit any one else a mr hull also from new york and a young couple from hartford my house accommodates no more how long have the first mentioned couple been with you 
Three months. They came in June. Are they with you still? Virtually, sir. They have not moved their trunks. But neither of them is in Haddam at present. Mrs. Van Burnham came to New York last Monday morning, and in the afternoon her husband also left, presumably for New York. I have seen nothing of either of them since. It was on Tuesday night the murder occurred. Did either of them take a trunk? No, sir. A handbag? Yes, Mrs. Van Burnham carried a bag, but it was a very small one. Large enough to hold a dress? Oh, no, sir. And Mr. Van Burnham? He carried an umbrella. I saw nothing else. Why did they not leave together? Did you hear anyone say? Yes, I heard them say Mrs. Van Burnham came against her husband's wishes. He did not want her to leave Haddam, but she would, and he was none too pleased at it. Indeed, they had words about it, and as both our rooms overlooked the same veranda, I could not help hearing some of their talk. Will you tell us what you heard? It does not seem right, thus this honest woman spoke, but if it's the law, I must not go against it. I heard him say these words. I have changed my mind, Louise. The more I think of it, the more disinclined I am to have you meddle in the matter. Besides, it will do no good. You will only add to the prejudice against you, and our life will become more unbearable than it is now. Of what were they speaking? I do not know. And what did she reply? Oh, she uttered a torrent of words that had less sense in them than feeling. She wanted to go. She would go. She had not changed her mind, and considered that her impulses were as well worth following as his cool judgment. She was not happy, and never had been happy, and meant there should be a change, even if it were for the worse but she did not believe it would be for the worse. Was she not pretty? Was she not very pretty when in distress and looking up thus? And I heard her fall on her knees, a movement which called out a grunt from her husband, but whether this was of an expression of approval or disapproval I cannot say. A silence followed during which I caught the sound of his steady tramping up and down the room. Then she spoke again in a petulant way. It may seem foolish to you, she cried, knowing me as you do, and being used to seeing me in all my moods, but to him it will be a surprise, and I will so manage it that it will effect all we want, and more, too, perhaps. I, I have a genius for some things, Howard, and my better angel tells me I shall succeed. And what did he reply to that? that the name of her better angel was vanity that his father would see through her blandishments that he forbade her to prosecute her schemes and much more to the same effect to all of which she answered by a vigorous stamp of her foot and the declaration that she was going to do what she thought best in spite of all opposition that it was a lover and not a tyrant that she had married and that if he did not know what was good for himself, she did, and that when he received an intimation from his father that the breach in the family was closed, then he would acknowledge that if she had no fortune and no connections, she had at least a plentiful supply of wit. Upon which he remarked, a poor qualification when it verges upon folly, which seemed to close the conversation, 
for I heard no more till the sound of her skirts rustling past my door assured me she had carried her point and was leaving the house. This was not done without great discomfiture to her husband, if one may judge from the few brief but emphatic words that escaped him before he closed his own door and followed her down the hall. Do you remember those words? They were swear words, sir. I am sorry to say it, but he certainly cursed her and his own folly. Yet I always thought he loved her. Did you see her after she passed your door? Yes, sir, on the walk outside. Was she then on the way to the train? Yes, sir. Carrying the bag of which you have spoken? Yes, sir. Another proof of the state of feeling between them, for he was very considerate in his treatment of ladies, and I never saw him do anything ungallant before. You say you watched her as she went down the walk? Yes, sir. It is human nature, sir. I have no other excuse to offer. It was an apology I myself might have made. I conceived a liking for this homely, matter-of-fact woman. Did you note her dress? Yes, sir. That is human nature also, or rather, woman's nature. Particularly, madam, so that you can describe it to the jury before you? I think so. Will you then be good enough to tell us what sort of a dress Mrs. Van Burnham wore when she left your house for the city? It was black and white plaid silk, very rich. Why, what did this mean? We had all expected a very different description. It was made fashionably, and the sleeves, well, it's impossible to describe the sleeves. She wore no wrap, which seemed foolish to me, for we have had very sudden changes sometimes in September. A plaid dress, and did you notice her hat? Oh, I have seen the hat often. It was of every conceivable color. It would have been called bad taste at one time, but nowadays... The pause was significant. More than one man in the room chuckled, but the women kept a discreet silence. Would you know that hat if you saw it? I should think I would. The emphasis was that of a countrywoman, and amused some people notwithstanding the melodious tones in which it was uttered. But it did not amuse me. My thoughts had flown to the hat which Mr. Grice had found in the third room of Mr. Van Burnham's house, and which was of every color of the rainbow. The coroner asked two other questions, one in regards to the gloves worn by Mrs. Van Burnham, and the other in regard to her shoes. To the first Miss Ferguson replied that she did not notice her gloves, and to the other that Mrs. Van Burnham was very fashionable, and as pointed shoes were in fashion, in cities at least, she probably wore pointed shoes. The discovery that Mrs. Van Burnham had been differently dressed on that day from the young woman found dead in the Van Burnham parlors had acted as a shock upon most of the spectators. They were just beginning to recover from it when Miss Ferguson sat down. The coroner was the only one who had not seemed at a loss. Why, we were soon destined to know. End of chapter 10
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green, Chapter 11, The Order Clerk. A lady well known in New York society was the next person summoned. She was a friend of the Van Burnham family and had known Howard from childhood. She had not liked his marriage. Indeed, she rather participated in the family feeling against it. But when young Mrs. Van Burnham came to her house on the preceding Monday and begged the privilege of remaining with her for one night, she had not had the heart to refuse her. Mrs. Van Burnham had therefore slept in her house on Monday night. Questioned in regard to that lady's appearance and manner, she answered that her guest was unnaturally cheerful, laughing much and showing a great vivacity, that she gave no reason for her good spirit, nor did she mention her own affairs in any way, rather took pains not to do so. How long did she stay? Till the next morning. And how was she dressed? Just as Miss Ferguson has described. Did she bring her handbag to your house? Yes, and left it there. We found it in her room after she was gone. Indeed, and how do you account for that? She was preoccupied. I saw it in her cheerfulness, which was forced and not always well-timed. And where is that bag now? Mr. Van Burnham has it. We kept it for a day, and as she did not call for it, sent it down to the office on Wednesday morning. Before you had heard of the murder? Oh, yes, before I had heard anything about the murder. As she was your guest, you probably accompanied her to the door? I did, sir. Did you notice her hands? Can you say what was the color of her gloves? I do not think she wore any gloves on leaving. It was very warm, and she held them in her hand. I remember this, for I noticed the sparkle of her rings as she turned to say good-bye. Ah, you saw her rings. Distinctly. So that when she left you she was dressed in a black and white plaid silk, had a large hat covered with flowers on her head, and wore rings. Yes, sir. And with these words ringing in the ears of the jury, the witness sat down. What was coming? Something important, or the coroner would not look so satisfied, or the faces of the officials about him so expectant. I waited with great but subdued eagerness for the testimony of the next witness, who is a young man by the name of Callahan. I don't like young men in general. They are either over-suave and polite, as if they condescended to remember that you are elderly, and that it is their duty to make you forget it or else they are pert and shallow, and disgust you with their egotism. But this young man looked sensible and businesslike, and I took to him at once, though what connection he could have with this affair I could not imagine. His first words, however, settled all questions as to his personality. He was the order clerk at Altman's. As he acknowledged this, I seemed to have some faint premonition of what was coming. Perhaps I had not been without some vague idea of the truth ever since I had put my mind to work on this matter. Perhaps my wits only received their real spur then. But certainly I knew what he was going to say as soon as he opened his lips, which gave me quite a good opinion of myself. Whether rightfully or not, I leave you to judge. 
His evidence was short, but very much to the point. On the 17th of September, as could be verified by the books, the firm had received an order for a woman's complete outfit to be sent C.O.D. to Mrs. James Pope at the Hotel D. on Broadway. Sizes and measures and some particulars were stated, and as the order bore the words in haste underlined upon it, several clerks had assisted him in filling the order, which when filled had been sent by special messenger to the place designated. Had he this order with him? He had. And could he identify the articles sent to fill it? He could. At which the coroner motioned to an officer, and a pile of clothing was brought forward from some mysterious corner and laid before the witness. Immediately expectation rose to a high pitch, for every one recognized, or thought they did, the apparel which had been taken from the victim. The young man, who was of the alert nervous type, took up the articles one by one and examined them closely. As he did so, the whole assembled crowd surged forward, and lightning-like glances from a hundred eyes followed his every movement and expression. "'Are they the same?' inquired the coroner. The witness did not hesitate. With one quick glance at the blue serge dress, black cape, and battered hat, he answered in a firm tone, "'They are.' And a clue was given at last to the dreadful mystery absorbing us. The deep-drawn sigh which swept through the room testified to the universal satisfaction. Then our attention became fixed again, for the coroner, pointing to the undergarments accompanying the articles already mentioned, demanded if they had been included in the order. There was as little hesitation in the reply given to this question as to the former. He recognized each piece as having come from his establishment. You will note, said he, that they have never been washed and that the pencil marks are still on them very good observed the coroner and you will note that one article there is torn down the back was it in that condition when sent it was not sir all were in perfect order most assuredly sir very good again the jury will take cognizance of this fact which may be useful to them in their future conclusions and now, Mr. Callahan, do you notice anything lacking here from the list of articles forwarded by you? No, sir. Yet there is one very necessary adjunct to a woman's outfit which is not to be found here. Yes, sir, the shoes, but I am not surprised at that. We sent shoes, but they were not satisfactory, and they were returned. Ah, I see. Officer, show the witness the shoes that were taken from the deceased. This was done, and when Mr. Callahan had examined them, the coroner inquired if they came from his store. He replied no, whereupon they were held up to the jury, and attention called to the fact that, while rather new than old, they gave signs of having been worn more than once, which was not true of anything else taken from the victim. This matter settled, the coroner proceeded with his questions. Who carried the articles ordered to the address given? A man in our employ named Clapp. Did he bring back the amount of the bill? Yes, sir, less the five dollars charged for the shoes. What was the amount, may I ask? Here is our cash book, sir. The amount received from Mrs. James Pope, Hotel D, on the 17th of September, is, as you see, 
$75.58. Let the jury see the book, also the order. They were both handed to the jury, and if ever I wished myself in anyone's shoes save my own very substantial ones, it was at that moment I did so want to peep at that order. It seemed to interest the jury also, for their heads drew together very eagerly over it, and some whispers and a few knowing looks passed between them. Finally one of them spoke. It is written in a very odd hand. Do you call this a woman's writing or a man's? I have no opinion to give on the subject, rejoined the witness. It is intelligible writing, and that is all that comes within my province. The twelve men shifted on their seats and surveyed the coroner eagerly. Why did he not proceed? Evidently he was not quick enough to suit them. Have you any further questions for this witness? asked that gentleman after a short delay. Their nervousness increased, but no one ventured to follow the coroner's suggestion. A poor lot, I call them, a very poor lot. I would have found plenty of questions to put to him. I expected to see the man Clapp called next, but I was disappointed in this. The name uttered was Henshaw, and the person who rose in answer to it was a tall, burly man with a shock of curly black hair. He was the clerk of the Hotel D, and we all forgot Clapp in our eagerness to hear what this man had to say. His testimony amounted to this, that a person by the name of Pope was registered on his books, that she came to his house on the 17th of September sometime near noon, that she was not alone, that a person she called her husband accompanied her, and that they had been given a room at her request on the second floor overlooking Broadway. Did you see the husband? Was it his handwriting we see in your register? No, sir. He came into the office, but he did not approach the desk. It was she who registered for them both, and who did all the business, in fact. I thought it queer, but took it for granted he was ill, for he held his head very much down and acted as if he felt disturbed or anxious. Did you notice him closely? Would you be able to identify him on sight? No, sir, I should not. He looked like a hundred other men I see every day medium in height and build, with brown hair and brown moustache. Not noticeable in any way, sir, except for his hang-dog air and evident desire not to be noticed. But you saw him later? No, sir. After he went to his room, he stayed there, and no one saw him. I did not even see him when he left the house. His wife paid the bill, and he did not come into the office. But you saw her well. You would know her again? Perhaps, sir, but I doubt it. She wore a thick veil when she came in, and though I might remember her voice, I have no recollection of her features, for I did not see them. You can give a description of her dress, though. Surely you must have looked long enough at a woman who wrote her own and her husband's name in your register for you to remember her clothes. Yes, for they were very simple. She had on what is called a gossamer, which covered her from neck to toe, and on her head a hat wrapped all about with a blue veil. So that she might have worn any dress under that gossamer? Yes, sir. And any hat under that veil? Any one that was large enough, sir. Very good, now. Did you see her hands? Not to remember them. Did she have gloves on? I cannot say. I did not stand and watch her, sir. 
"'That is a pity, but you say you heard her voice?' "'Yes, sir. Was it a lady's voice? Was her tone refined and her language good?' "'They were, sir. When did they leave? How long did they remain in your house?' "'They left in the evening after tea, I should say.' "'How? On foot or in a carriage?' "'In a carriage, one of the hacks that stand in front of the door. "'Did they bring any baggage with them?' "'No, sir. Did they take any away?' "'The lady carried a parcel.' What kind of parcel? A brown paper parcel like clothing done up. And the gentleman? I did not see him. Was she dressed in the same in going as in coming? To all appearance, except her hat, that was smaller. She had the gossamer on still then? Yes, sir. And a veil? Yes, sir. Only that the hat it covered was smaller? Yes, sir. And now, how did you account to yourself? for the parcel and the change of hat. I didn't account for them. I didn't think anything about them at the time. But since I have had the subject brought to my mind, I find it easy enough. She had a package delivered to her while she was in our house. Or rather, packages. They were quite numerous, I believe. Can you recall the circumstances of their delivery? Yes, sir. The man who brought the packages said that they had not been paid for, so I allowed him to carry them to Mrs. James Pope's room. When he went away, he had but one small parcel with him, the rest he had left. And this is all you can tell us about this singular couple. Had they no meals in your house? No, sir, the gentleman, or I suppose I should say the lady, sir, for the order was given in her voice, sent for two dozen oysters and a bottle of ale, which were furnished to them in their rooms but they didn't come to the dining-room. Is the boy here who carried up those articles? He is, sir. And the chambermaid who attended their rooms? Yes, sir. Then you may answer this question, and we will excuse you. How was the gentleman dressed when you saw him? In a linen duster and a felt hat. Let the jury remember that. And now let us hear from Richard Clapp. Is Richard Clapp in the room? I am, sir, answered a cheery voice, and a lively young man with a shrewd eye and a wide-awake manner popped up from behind a portly woman on a side-seat and rapidly came forward. He was asked several questions before the leading one which we all expected, but I will not record them here. The question which brought the reply most eagerly anticipated was this. Do you remember being sent to the Hotel D., with several packages for a Mrs. James Pope. I do, sir. Did you deliver them in person? Did you see the lady? A peculiar look crossed his face, and we all leaned forward, but his answer brought a shock of disappointment with it. No, I didn't, sir. She wouldn't let me in. She bade me lay the things down by the door and wait in the rear hall till she called me. And you did this? Yes, sir. "'But you kept your eye on the door, of course.' "'Naturally, sir.' "'And saw?' "'A hand steal out and take in the things.' "'A woman's hand?' "'No, a man's. I saw the white cuff. "'And how long was it before they called you?' Fifteen minutes, I should say. "'I heard a voice cry, "'Here,' and seeing their door open, I went toward it. "'But by the time I reached it, it was shut again, "'and I only heard the lady say, 
that all the articles but the shoes were satisfactory, and would I thrust the bill in under the door. I did so, and they were some minutes counting out the change, but presently the door opened slightly, and I saw a man's hand holding out the money, which was correct to the scent. "'You need not receipt the bill,' cried the lady from somewhere in the room. "'Give him the shoes and let him go.' So I received the shoes in the same mysterious way I had the money, and seeing no reason for waiting longer, pocketed the bills and returned to the store. "'Has the jury any further questions to ask the witness?' "'Of course not. They were ninnies, all of them, and—' But contrary to my expectation, one of them did perk up courage, and wriggling very much on his seat, ventured to ask if the cuff he had seen on the man's hand, when it was thrust through the doorway, had a button in it. The answer was disappointing. The witness had not noticed any. The juror, somewhat abashed, sank into silence, at which another of the precious twelve, inspired no doubt by the other's example, blurted out, "'Then what was the color of the coat-sleeve? You surely can remember that.' But another disappointment awaited us. He did not wear any coat. It was a shirt-sleeve I saw. A shirt-sleeve, there was no clue in that. A visible look of dejection spread through the room, which was not dissipated till another witness stood up. This time it was the bell-boy of the hotel who had been on duty that day. His testimony was brief and added but little to the general knowledge. He had been summoned more than once by these mysterious parties, but only to receive his orders through a closed door. He had not entered the room at all. He was followed by the chambermaid, who testified that she was in the room once while they were there, that she saw them both then, but did not catch a glimpse of their faces. Mr. Pope was standing in the window almost entirely shielded by the curtains, and Mrs. Pope was busy hanging up something in the wardrobe. The gentleman had on his duster, and the lady her gossamer. It was but a few minutes after their arrival. Questioned in regard to the state of the room after they left, she said that there was a lot of brown paper lying about, marked B. Altman, but nothing else that did not belong there. Not a tag, nor a hat-pin, nor a bit of memorandum lying on bureau or table? Nothing, sir, so far as I mind. I wasn't on the lookout for anything, sir. They were a queer couple, but we have lots of queer couples at our house and the most I notices, sir, is those what remember the chambermaid and those what don't. This couple was of the kind what don't. Did you sweep the room after their departure? I always does. They went late, so I swept the room the next morning. And threw the sweepings away, of course. Of course, would you have me keep them for treasures? It might have been well if you had, muttered the coroner. The combings from the lady's hair might have been very useful in establishing her identity. The porter who has charge of the lady's entrance was the last witness from this house. He had been on duty on the evening in question, and had noticed this couple leaving. They both carried packages and had attracted his attention, first by the long old-fashioned duster which the gentleman wore, and secondly, by the pains they both took not to be observed by any one. The woman was veiled, as had already been said, 
and the man held his package in such a way as to shield his face entirely from observation. "'So that you would not know him if you saw him again?' asked the coroner. "'Exactly, sir,' was the uncompromising answer. As he sat down, the coroner observed, "'You will note from this testimony, gentlemen, "'that this couple signing themselves Mr. and Mrs. James Pope of Philadelphia "'left this house dressed each in a long garment, "'eminently fitted for purposes of concealment, "'he in a linen duster, and she in a gossamer. "'Let us now follow this couple a little farther "'and see what became of these disguising articles of apparel. "'Is Seth Brown here?' A man who was so evidently a hackman that it seemed superfluous to ask him what his occupation was, shuffled forward at this. It was in his hack that this couple had left the D. He remembered them very well, as he had good reason to, first because the man paid him before entering the carriage, saying that he was to let them out at the northwest corner of Madison Square, and secondly, but here the coroner interrupted him to ask if he had seen the gentleman's face when he paid him. The answer was, as might have been expected, no, it was dark and he did not turn his head. Didn't you think it queer to be paid before you reached your destination? Yes, but the rest was queerer. After I had taken the money, I never refuses money, sir, and was expecting him to get into the hack, he steps up to me again and says in a lower tone than before, My wife is very nervous, drive slow, if you please, and when you reach the place I have named, watch your horses carefully, for if they should move while she is getting out, the shock would throw her into a spasm. As she had looked very pert and lively, I thought this mighty queer, and I tried to get a peep at his face. But he was too smart for me, and was in the carriage before I could clap my eye on him. But you were more fortunate when they got out. You surely saw one or both of them then. No, sir, I didn't. I had to watch the horses' heads, you know. I shouldn't like to be the cause of a young lady having a spasm. Do you know in what direction they went? East, I should say. I heard them laughing long after I had whipped up my horses. A queer couple, sir, that puzzled me some, though I should not have thought of them twice if I had not found next day. Well? The gentleman's linen duster and the neat brown gossamer which the lady had worn, lying folded under the two back cushions of my hack, a present for which I was very much obliged to them, but which I was not long allowed to enjoy, for yesterday the police. Well, well, no matter about that. Here is a duster and here is a brown gossamer. Are these the articles you found under your cushions? If you will examine the neck of the lady's gossamer you can soon tell, sir. There was a small hole in the one I found, as if something had been snipped out of it, the owner's name most likely. Or the name of the place where it was bought, suggested the coroner, holding the garment up to view so as to reveal a square hole under the collar. "'That's it!' cried the hackman. "'That's the very one. "'Shame, I say, to spoil a new garment that way.' "'Why do you call it new?' asked the coroner. "'Because it hasn't a mud-spot or even a mark of dust upon it. "'We looked it all over, my wife and I, "'and decided it had not been long off the shelf. "'A pretty good haul for a poor man like me, "'and if the police—' "'But here he was cut short again by an important question.' 
There is a clock but a short distance from the place where you stopped. Did you notice what time it was when you drove away? Yes, sir, I don't know why I remember it, but I do. As I turned to go back to the hotel, I looked up at this clock. It was half past eleven. End of chapter eleven. Chapter twelve. The Keys. We were all by this time greatly interested in the proceedings, and when another hackman was called we recognized at once that an effort was about to be made to connect this couple with the one who had alighted at Mr. Van Burnham's door. The witness, who was a melancholy chap, kept his stand on the east side of the square. At about twenty minutes to twelve he was awakened from a nap he had been taking on the top of his coach by a sharp rap on his whip-arm, and looking down he saw a lady and gentleman standing at the door of his vehicle. "'We want to go to Gramercy Park,' said the lady. "'Drive us there at once.' I nodded, for what is the use of wasting words when it can be avoided, and they stepped at once into the coach. "'Can you describe them? Tell us how they looked?' "'I never noticed people. Besides, it was dark.' but he had a swell air, and she was pert and merry, for she laughed as she closed the door. Can't you remember how they were dressed? No, sir, she had on something that flapped about her shoulders, and he had a dark hat on his head, but that was all I saw. Didn't you see his face? Not a bit of it, he kept it turned away. He didn't want nobody looking at him. She did all the business. Then you saw her face? Yes, for a minute, but I wouldn't know it again. She was young and purty, and her hand which dropped the money into mine was small, but I couldn't say no more, not if you was to give me the town. Did you know that the house you stopped at was Mr. Van Burnham's, and that it was supposed to be empty? No, sir, I'm not one of the swell ones. My acquaintances live in another part of the town. But you noticed that the house was dark? I may have, I don't know. "'And that is all you have to tell us about them?' "'No, sir. The next morning, which was yesterday, sir, "'as I was a-dustin' out the coach, "'I found under the cushions a large blue veil "'folded and lying very flat. "'But it had been slit with a knife and could not be worn. "'This was strange, too, and while more than one person about me "'ventured an opinion, I muttered to myself, "'James Pope, his mark!' "'astonished at a coincidence which so completely connected the occupants of the two coaches. "'But the coroner was able to produce a witness, "'whose evidence carried the matter on still farther. "'A policeman in full uniform testified next, "'and after explaining that his beat led him from Madison Avenue to 3rd on 27th Street, "'went on to say that as he was coming up this street on Tuesday evening, some few minutes before midnight, he encountered, somewhere between Lexington Avenue and Third, a man and woman walking rapidly towards the latter avenue, each carrying a parcel of some dimensions, that he noted them because they seemed so merry, but would have thought nothing of it if he had not presently perceived them coming back without the parcels. They were chatting more gaily than ever. The lady wore a short cape, and the gentleman a dark coat, but he could give no other description of their appearance, for they went by rapidly, and he was more interested in wondering what they had done with such large parcels 
in such a short time at that hour of night than in noting how they looked or whither they were going he did observe however that they proceeded towards madison square and remembers now that he heard a carriage suddenly drive away from that direction the coroner asked him but one question had the lady no parcel when you saw her last i saw none could she not have carried one under her cape perhaps if it was small enough as small as a lady's hat say well it would have to be smaller than some of them are now sir and so terminated this portion of the inquiry a short delay followed the withdrawal of this witness the coroner who was a somewhat portly man and who had felt the heat of the day very much leaned back and looked anxious while the jury always restless moved in their seats like a set of schoolboys and seemed to long for the hour of adjournment notwithstanding the interest which everybody but themselves seemed to take in this exciting investigation finally an officer who had been sent into the adjoining room came back with a gentleman who was no sooner recognized as mr franklin van burnham than a great change took place in the countenances of all present the coroner sat forward and dropped the large palm-leaf fan he had been industriously using for the last few minutes the jury settled down and the whispering of the many curious ones about me grew less audible and finally ceased altogether a gentleman of the family was about to be interrogated and such a gentleman i have purposely refrained from describing this best known and best reputed member of the van burnham family foreseeing this hour when he would attract the attention of a hundred eyes and when his appearance would require our special notice i will therefore endeavor to picture him to you as he looked on this memorable morning with just the simple warning that you must not expect me to see with the eyes of a young girl or even with those of a fashionable society woman i know a man when i see him and i had always regarded mr franklin as an exceptionally fine-looking and prepossessing gentleman but i shall not go into raptures as i heard a girl behind me doing nor do i feel like acknowledging him as a paragon of all virtues as mrs cunningham did that evening in my parlor he is a medium-sized man with a shape not unlike his brother's his hair is dark and so are his eyes but his mustache is brown and his complexion quite fair he carries himself with distinction and though his countenance in repose has a precise air that is not perfectly agreeable it has when he speaks or smiles an expression at once keen and amiable on this occasion he failed to smile and though his elegance was sufficiently apparent his worth was not so much so yet the impression generally made was favorable as one could perceive from the air of respect with which his testimony was received he was asked many questions some were germane to the matter in hand and some seemed to strike wide of all mark he answered them all courteously showing a manly composure in doing so that served to calm the fever heat into which many had been thrown by the stories of the two hackmen but as his evidence up to this point related merely to minor concerns this was neither strange nor conclusive the real test began when the coroner with a certain bluster 
which may have been meant to attract the attention of the jury, now visibly waning, or, as was more likely, may have been the unconscious expression of a secret, if hitherto well-concealed, embarrassment. Asked the witness whether the keys to his father's front door had any duplicates. The answer came in a decidedly changed tone. No, the key used by our agent opens the basement door only. The coroner showed his satisfaction. No duplicates, he repeated. Then you will have no difficulty in telling us where the keys to your father's front door were kept during the family's absence. Did the young man hesitate, or was it but imagination on my part? They were usually in my possession. Usually. There was irony in that tone. Evidently the coroner was getting the better of his embarrassment, if he had felt any. And where were they on the 17th of this month? Were they in your possession then? No, sir. The young man tried to look calm and at his ease, but the difficulty he felt in doing so was apparent. On the morning of that day, he continued, I passed them over to my brother. Ah, here was something tangible as well as important. I began to fear the police understood themselves only too well and so did the whole crowd of persons there assembled. A groan in one direction was answered by a sigh in another, and it needed all the coroner's authority to prevent an outbreak. Meanwhile Mr. Van Burnham stood erect and unwavering, though his eye showed the suffering which these demonstrations awakened. He did not turn in the direction of the room where we felt sure his family was gathered, but it was evident that his thoughts did, and that most painfully. The coroner, on the contrary, showed little or no feelings. He had brought the investigation up to this critical point, and felt fully competent to carry it further. "'May I ask,' said he, "'where the transference of these keys took place?' "'I gave them to him in our office last Tuesday morning. He said he might want to go into the house before his father came home.' Did he say why he wanted to go into the house? No. Was he in the habit of going into it alone and during the family's absence? No. Had he any clothing there or any articles belonging to himself or his wife which he would be likely to wish to carry away? No. Yet he wanted to go in. He said so. And you gave him the keys without question? Certainly, sir. Was that not opposed to your usual principles, to your way of doing things, I should say? Perhaps, but principles, by which I suppose you mean my usual business methods, do not govern me in my relations with my brother. He asked me a favor, and I granted it. It would have to have been a much larger one for me to have asked an explanation from him before doing so. Yet you are not on good terms with your brother. At least you have not had the name of being for some time. We have had no quarrel. Did he return the keys you lent him? No. Have you seen them since? No. Would you know them if they were shown you? I would know them if they unlocked our front door. But you would not know them on sight? I don't think so. Mr. Van Burnham, it is disagreeable for me to go into family matters. But if you have had no quarrel with your brother, how comes it that you and he have had so little intercourse of late? 
he has been in connecticut and i at long branch is not that a good answer sir good but not good enough you have a common office in new york have you not certainly the firm's office and you sometimes meet there even while residing in different localities yes our business calls us in at times and then we meet of course do you talk when you meet talk of other matters besides business i mean are your relations friendly do you show the same spirit towards each other as you did three years ago say we are older perhaps we are not quite so voluble but do you feel the same no i see you will have it and so i will no longer hold back the truth we are not as brotherly in our intercourse as we used to be but there is no animosity between us i have a decided regard for my brother this was said quite nobly and i liked him for it but i began to feel that perhaps it had been for the best after all that i had never been intimate with the family but i must not forestall either events or my opinions is there any reason it is the coroner of course who is speaking why there should be any falling off in your mutual confidence has your brother done anything to displease you we did not like his marriage was it an unhappy one it was not a suitable one did you know mrs van burnham well that you say this yes i knew her but the rest of the family did not yet they shared in your disapprobation they felt the marriage more than i did the lady excuse me i never like to speak ill of the sex was not lacking in good sense or virtue but she was not the person we had a right to expect howard to marry and you let him see that you thought so how could we do otherwise even after she had been his wife for some months we could not like her did your brother i am sorry to press this matter ever show that he felt your change of conduct towards him i find it equally hard to answer was the quick reply my brother is of an affectionate nature and he has some if not all of the family's pride i think he did feel it though he never said so he is not without loyalty to his wife mr van burnham of whom does the firm doing business under the name of van burnham and sons consist of the three persons mentioned no others no has there ever been in your hearing any threat made by the senior partner of dissolving this firm as it stands i have heard i felt sorry for this strong but far from heartless man but i would not have stopped the inquiry at this point if i could i was far too curious i have heard my father say that he would withdraw if howard did not whether he would have done so i consider open to doubt my father is a just man and never fails to do the right thing though he sometimes speaks with unnecessary harshness he made the threat however yes and howard heard it or of it i cannot say which mr van burnham have you noticed any change in your brother since this threat was uttered how sir what change in his treatment of his wife or in his attitude towards yourself i have not seen him in the company of his wife since they went to haddam as for his conduct towards myself i can say no more than i have already we have never forgotten that we are children of one mother 
Mr. Van Burnham, how many times have you seen Mrs. Howard Van Burnham? Several, more frequently before they were married than since. You were in your brother's confidence then, at the time, knew he was contemplating marriage? It was in my endeavors to prevent the match that I saw so much of Miss Louise Stapleton. Ah, I am glad of the explanation. I was just going to inquire why you, of all members of the family, were the only one to know your brother's wife by sight. The witness, considering this question answered, made no reply. But the next suggestion could not be passed over. If you saw Mrs. Van Burnham so often, you are acquainted with her personal appearance? Sufficiently so, as well as I know that of my ordinary calling acquaintance. Was she light or dark? She had brown hair. Similar to this, the lock held up was the one which had been cut from the head of the dead girl. Yes, somewhat similar to that. The tone was cold, but he could not hide his distress. Mr. Van Burnham, have you looked well at the woman who was found murdered in your father's house? I have, sir. Is there anything in her general outline or in such features as have escaped disfigurement to remind you of Mrs. Howard Van Burnham? I may have thought so at first glance, he replied with decided effort. And did you change your mind at the second? He looked troubled, but answered firmly, No, I cannot say that I did, but you must not regard my opinion as conclusive, he hastily added. My knowledge of the lady was comparatively slight. The jury will take that into account. All we want to know now is whether you can assert from any knowledge you have, or from anything to be noted in the body itself, that it is not Mrs. Howard Van Burnham. I cannot. And with this solemn assertion, his examination closed. The remainder of the day was taken up in trying to prove a similarity between Mrs. Van Burnham's handwriting and that of Mrs. James Pope, as seen in the register of the Hotel D., and on the order sent to Altman's. But the only conclusion reached was that the latter might be the former disguised, and even on this point the experts differed. End of chapter 12「All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 13. Howard Van Burnham. The gentleman who stepped from the carriage and entered Mr. Van Burnham's house at twelve o'clock that night produced so little impression upon me that I went to bed satisfied that no result would follow these efforts at identification. And so I told Mr. Grice when he arrived next morning. But he seemed by no means disconcerted, and merely requested that I would submit to one more trial, to which I gave my consent, and he departed. I could have asked him a string of questions, but his manner did not invite them and for some reason I was too wary to show an interest in this tragedy, superior to that felt by every right-thinking person connected with it. 
At ten o'clock I was in my old seat in the courtroom. The same crowd with different faces confronted me, amid which the twelve stolid countenances of the jury looked like old friends. Howard Van Burnham was the witness called, and as he came forward and stood in full view of us all, the interest of the occasion reached its climax. His countenance wore a reckless look that did not serve to prepossess him with the people at whose mercy he stood. But he did not seem to care, and waited for the coroner's questions with an air of ease, which was in direct contrast to the drawn and troubled faces of his father and brother just visible in the background. Coroner Dahl surveyed him a few minutes before speaking, then he quietly asked if he had seen the dead body of the woman who had been found lying under a fallen piece of furniture in his father's house. He replied that he had. Before she was removed from the house or after it? After. Did you recognize it? Was it the body of anyone you know? I do not think so. Has your wife, who was missing yesterday, been heard from yet, Mr. Van Burnham? Not to my knowledge, sir. Had she not, that is your wife, a complexion similar to that of the dead woman just alluded to? She had a fair skin and brown hair, if that is what you mean. But these attributes are common to too many women for me to give them any weight in an attempted identification of this importance. Had they no other similar points of a less general character? Was not your wife of a slight and graceful build, such as is attributed to the subject of this inquiry? My wife was slight, and she was graceful, common attributes also. And your wife had a scar? Yes. On the left ankle? Yes. Which the deceased also has? That I do not know. They say so, but I had no interest in looking. Why, may I ask, did you not think it a remarkable coincidence? The young man frowned. It was the first token of feeling he had given. I was not on the lookout for coincidences, was his cold reply. I had no reason to think this unhappy victim of an unknown man's brutality my wife, and so did not allow myself to be moved by even such a fact as this. You had no reason, repeated the coroner, to think this woman your wife. Had you any reason to think she was not? Yes. Will you give us that reason? I had more than one. First, my wife would never wear the clothes I saw on the girl whose dead body was shown to me. Secondly, she would never go into any house alone with a man at the hour testified to by one of your witnesses. Not with any man? I did not mean to include her husband in my remark, of course. But as I did not take her to Gramercy Park, the fact that the deceased woman entered an empty house accompanied by a man is proof enough to me that she was not Louise Van Burnham. When did you part with your wife? On Monday morning at the depot in Haddam. Did you know where she was going? I knew where she said she was going. And where was that, may I ask? To New York to interview my father. But your father was not in New York. He was daily expected here. The steamer on which he had sailed from Southampton was due on Tuesday. Had she an interest in seeing your father? Was there any special reason why she should leave you for doing so? She thought so. She thought he would become reconciled to her entrance into our family, if he should see her suddenly and without prejudiced persons standing by. 
and did you fear to mar the effect of this meeting if you accompanied her no for i doubted if the meeting would ever take place i had no sympathy with her schemes and did not wish to give her the sanction of my presence was that the reason you let her go to new york alone yes had you no other no why did you follow her then in less than five hours because i was uneasy because i also wanted to see my father because i am a man accustomed to carrying out every impulse and impulse led me that day in the direction of my somewhat headstrong wife did you know where your wife intended to spend the night i did not she has many friends or at least i have in the city and i concluded she would go to one of them as she did when did you arrive in the city before ten o'clock yes a few minutes before did you try to find your wife no i went directly to the club did you try to find her the next morning no i had heard that the steamer had not yet been sighted off fire island so considered the effort unnecessary why what connection is there between this fact and an endeavor on your part to find your wife a very close one she had come to new york to throw herself at my father's feet now she could only do this at the steamer or in why do you not proceed mr van burnam i will i do not know why i stopped or in his own house in his own house in the house in gramercy park do you mean yes he has no other the house in which this dead girl was found yes impatiently did you think she might throw herself at his feet there she said she might and as she is romantic foolishly romantic i thought her fully capable of doing so and so you did not seek her in the morning no sir how about in the afternoon this was a close question we saw that he was affected by it though he tried to carry it off bravely i did not see her in the afternoon i was in a restless frame of mind and did not remain in the city ah indeed and where did you go unless necessary i prefer not to say it is necessary i went to coney island alone yes did you see anybody there you know no and when did you return at midnight when did you reach your rooms later how much later two or three hours and where were you during those hours i was walking the streets the ease the quietness with which he made these acknowledgments were remarkable the jury to a man honored him with a prolonged stare and the awestruck crowd scarcely breathed during their utterance at the last sentence a murmur broke out at which he raised his head and with an air of surprise surveyed the people before him though he must have known what their astonishment meant he neither quailed nor blanched and while not in reality a handsome man he certainly looked handsome at this moment i did not know what to think so forbore to think anything meanwhile the examination went on mr van burnam i have been told that the locket i see there dangling from your watch-chain contains a lock of your wife's hair is it so i have a lock of her hair in this yes here is a lock clipped from the head of the unknown woman whose identity we seek have you any objection to comparing the two it is not an agreeable task you have set me 
was the imperturbable response. But I have no objection to doing what you ask. And calmly lifting the chain, he took off the locket, opened it, and held it out courteously towards the coroner. May I ask you to make the first comparison? he said. The coroner, taking the locket, laid the two locks of brown hair together, and after a moment's contemplation of them both, surveyed the young man seriously and remarked, They are of the same shade. Shall I pass them down to the jury? Howard bowed. You would have thought he was in a drawing-room and in the act of bestowing a favor. But his brother Franklin showed a very different countenance, and as for their father, one could not even see his face. He so persistently held up his hand before it. The jury, wide awake now, passed the locket along with many sly nods and a few whispered words. When it came back to the coroner, he took it and handed it to Mr. Van Burnham, saying, I wish you would observe the similarity for yourself. I can hardly detect any difference between them. Thank you, I am willing to take your word for it, replied the young man, with most astonishing aplomb. And coroner and jury for a moment looked baffled, and even Mr. Grice, of whose face I caught a passing glimpse at this instant, stared at the head of his cane, as if it were of thicker wood than he expected, and had more knotty points on it than even his accustomed hand liked to encounter. Another effort was not out of place, however, and the coroner, summoning up some of the pompous severity he found useful at times, asked the witness if his attention had been drawn to the dead woman's hands. He acknowledged that it had. The physician who made the autopsy urged me to look at them, and I did. They were certainly very like my wife's. Only like? I cannot say that they were my wife's. Do you wish me to perjure myself? A man should know his wife's hands as well as he knows her face. Very likely. And you are ready to swear these were not the hands of your wife? I am ready to swear I did not so consider them. And that is all? That is all. The coroner frowned and cast a glance at the jury. They needed prodding now and then, and this is the way he prodded them. As soon as they gave signs of recognizing the hint he gave them, he turned back and renewed his examination in these words. Mr. Van Burnham, did your brother, at your request, hand you the keys of your father's house on the morning of the day on which this tragedy occurred? He did. Have you those keys now? I have not. What have you done with them? Did you return them to your brother? No. I see where your inquiries are tending, and I do not suppose you will believe my simple word. But I lost the keys on the day I received them. That is why... Well, you may continue, Mr. Van Burnham. I have no more to say. My sentence was not worth completing. The murmur which rose about him seemed to show dissatisfaction but he remained imperturbable, or rather like a man who did not hear. I began to feel the most painful interest in the inquiry, and dreaded, while I anxiously anticipated, his further examination. You lost the keys. May I ask when and where? That I do not know. They were missing when I searched for them. Missing from my pocket, I mean. Ah, and when did you search for them? The next day, after I had heard of, of what had taken place in my father's house. The hesitations were those of a man weighing his reply. 
they told on the jury, as all such hesitations do, and made the coroner lose an atom of the respect he had hitherto shown this easy-going witness. And you do not know what became of them? No. Or into whose hands they fell? No, but probably into the hands of the wretch. To the astonishment of everybody, he was on the verge of vehemence, but becoming sensible of it, he controlled himself with a suddenness that was almost shocking. "'Find the murderer of this poor girl,' said he, with a quiet air that was more thrilling than any display of passion, and ask him where he got the keys with which he opened the door of my father's house at midnight. Was this a challenge, or just the natural outburst of an innocent man? Neither the jury nor the coroner seemed to know, the former looking startled and the latter nonplussed. But Mr. Grice, who had moved now into view, smoothed the head of his cane with quite a loving touch, and did not seem at this moment to feel its inequalities objectionable. "'We will certainly try to follow your advice,' the coroner assured him. "'Meanwhile, we must ask how many rings your wife is in the habit of wearing. Five, two on the left hand and three on the right. "'Do you know these rings?' "'I do. "'Better than you know her hands?' "'As well, sir.' "'Were they on her hands when you parted from her in Haddam?' "'They were. "'Did she always wear them?' "'Almost always. "'Indeed, I do not ever remember seeing her take off more than one of them. "'Which one?' "'The ruby with the diamond setting. "'Had the dead girl any rings on when you saw her?' "'No, sir. "'Did you look to see?' "'I think I did in the first shock of the discovery. "'And you saw none?' "'No, sir.' and from this you concluded she was not your wife. From this and other things. Yet you must have seen that the woman was in the habit of wearing rings, even if they were not on her hands at that moment. Why, sir? Why should I know about her habits? Is not that a ring I see now on your little finger? It is my seal ring which I always wear. Will you pull it off? Pull it off? "'If you please, it is a simple test I am requiring of you, sir.' The witness looked astonished, but pulled off the ring at once. "'Here it is,' said he. "'Thank you, but I do not want it. I merely want you to look at your finger.' The witness complied, evidently more nonplussed than disturbed by this command. "'Do you see any difference between that finger and the one next it?' "'Yes, there is a mark about my little finger showing where the ring has pressed.' Very good. There were such marks on the fingers of the dead girl, who, as you say, had no rings on. I saw them, and perhaps you did yourself. I did not. I did not look closely enough. They were on the little finger of the right hand, on the marriage finger of the left, and on the forefinger of the same. On which fingers did your wife wear rings? On those same fingers, sir, but I will not accept this fact as proving her identity with the deceased. Most women do wear rings, and on those very fingers. The coroner was nettled, but he was not discouraged. He exchanged looks with Mr. Grice, but nothing further passed between them, and we were left to conjecture what this interchange of glances meant. The witness, who did not seem to be affected either by the character of this examination, or by the conjectures to which it gave rise, preserved his sang-froid, and eyed the coroner as he might any other questioner. 
with suitable respect, but with no fear, and but little impatience. And yet he must have known the horrible suspicion darkening the minds of many people present, and suspected, even if against his will, that this examination, significant as it was, was but the forerunner of another and yet more serious one. "'You are very determined,' remarked the coroner, in beginning again, "'not to accept the very substantial proofs presented you "'of the identity between the object of this inquiry and your missing wife. "'But we are not yet ready to give up this struggle, "'and so I must ask if you heard the description given by Miss Ferguson "'of the manner in which your wife was dressed on leaving Haddam. "'I have. Was it a correct account?' Did she wear a black-and-white plaid silk and a hat trimmed with various colored ribbons and flowers? She did. Do you remember the hat? Were you with her when she bought it? Or did you ever have your attention drawn to it in any particular way? I remember the hat. Is this it, Mr. Van Burnham? I was watching Howard, and the start he gave was so pronounced and the emotion he displayed was in such violent contrast to the self-possession he had maintained up to this point, that I was held spellbound by the shock I received, and forbore to look at the object which the coroner had suddenly held up for inspection. But when I did turn my head towards it, I recognized at once the multicolored hat, which Mr. Grice had brought in from the third room of Mr. Van Burnham's house on the evening I was there, and realized almost in the same breath that great as this mystery has hitherto seemed, it was likely to prove yet greater before its proper elucidation was arrived at. Was that found in my father's house? Where, where was that hat found, stammered the witness, so far forgetting himself as to point towards the object in question? It was found by Mr. Grice in a closet off your father's dining-room, a short time after the dead girl was carried out. "'I don't believe it,' vociferated the young man, "'paling with something more than anger "'and shaking from head to foot. "'Shall I put Mr. Grice on his oath again?' "'asked the coroner mildly. "'The young man stared. "'Evidently these words failed to reach his understanding. "'Is it your wife's hat?' "'persisted the coroner with very little mercy. "'Do you recognize it for the one in which she left Haddam?' "'Would to God I did not!' burst in vehement distress from the witness, who at the next moment broke down altogether, and looked about for the support of his brother's arm. Franklin came forward, and the two brothers stood for a moment, in the face of the whole surging mass of curiosity-mongers before them, arm in arm, but with very different expressions on their two proud faces. Howard was the first to speak. "'If that was found in the parlors of my father's house,' he cried, "'then the woman who was killed there was my wife,' "'and he started away with a wild air towards the door. "'Where are you going?' asked the coroner quietly, "'while an officer stepped softly before him, "'and his brother compassionately drew him back by the arm. "'I am going to take her from that horrible place. "'She is my wife. "'Father!' "'You would not wish her to remain in that spot for another moment, would you, "'while we have a house we call our own?' "'Mr. Van Burnham, the senior, who had shrunk as far from sight as possible "'through these painful demonstrations, 
rose up at these words from his agonized son, and making him an encouraging gesture, walked hastily out of the room. Seeing which, the young man became calmer, and though he did not cease to shudder, tried to restrain his first grief, which to those who looked closely at him was evidently very sincere. "'I would not believe it was she,' he cried, in total disregard of the presence he was in. "'I would not believe it. But now—' A certain pitiful gesture finished the sentence, and neither coroner nor jury seemed to know just how to proceed, the conduct of the young man being so markedly different from what they had expected. After a short pause, painful enough to all concerned, the coroner, perceiving that very little could be done with the witness under the circumstances, adjourned the sitting till afternoon. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 A Serious Admission I went at once to a restaurant. I ate because it was time to eat, and because any occupation was welcome that would pass away the hours of waiting. I was troubled, and I did not know what to make of myself. I was no friend to the Van Burnhams, I did not like them, and certainly had never approved of any of them but Mr. Franklin, and yet I found myself altogether disturbed over the morning's developments, Howard's emotion having appealed to me in spite of my prejudices. I could not but think ill of him, his conduct not being such as I could honestly commend but I found myself more ready to listen to the involuntary pleadings of my own heart in his behalf than I had been prior to his testimony and its somewhat startling termination. But they were not through with him yet, and after the longest three hours I had ever passed, we were again convened before the coroner. I saw Howard as soon as anybody did. He came in arm in arm as before with his faithful brother, and sat down in a retired corner behind the coroner, but he was soon called forward. His face, when the light fell on it, was startling to most of us. It was as much changed as if years instead of hours had elapsed since last we saw it. No longer reckless in its expression, nor easy, nor politely patient. It showed in its every lineament that he had not only passed through a hurricane of passion, but that the bitterness, which had been its worst feature, had not passed with the storm, but had settled into the core of his nature, disturbing its equilibrium forever. My emotions were not allayed by the sight, but I kept all expression of them out of view. I must be sure of his integrity before giving rein to my sympathies. The jury moved and sat up quite alert when they saw him. I think that if these especial twelve men could have a murder case to investigate every day, they would grow quite wide awake in time. Mr. Van Burnham made no demonstration. Evidently there was not likely to be a repetition of the morning's display of passion. He had been iron in his impassibility at that time, but he was steel now, and steel which had been through the fiercest of fires. The opening question of the coroner showed by what experience these fires had been kindled. Mr. Van Burnham, I have been told that you have visited the morgue in the interim, which has elapsed since I last questioned you. Is that true? It is. 
Did you, in the opportunity thus afforded, examine the remains of the woman whose death we are investigating, attentively enough to enable you to say now whether they are those of your missing wife? I have. The body is that of Louise Van Burnham. I crave your pardon and that of the jury for my former obstinacy in refusing to recognize it. I thought myself fully justified in the stand I took. I see now that I was not. The coroner made no answer. There was no sympathy between him and this young man. Yet he did not fail in a decent show of respect. Perhaps because he did feel some sympathy for the witness's unhappy father and brother. You then acknowledge the victim to have been your wife? I do. It is a point gained, and I compliment the jury upon it. We can now proceed to settle, if possible, the identity of the person who accompanied Mrs. Van Burnham into your father's house. Wait, cried Mr. Van Burnham with a strange air. I acknowledge I was that person. It was coolly, almost fiercely said, but it was an admission that well-nigh created a hubbub. Even the coroner seemed moved, and cast a glance at Mr. Grice, which showed his surprise to be greater than his discretion. You acknowledge, he began, but the witness did not let him finish. I acknowledge that I was the person who accompanied her into that empty house, but I do not acknowledge that I killed her. She was alive and well when I left her, difficult as it is for me to prove it. It was the realization of this difficulty which made me perjure myself this morning. So, murmured the coroner, with another glance at Mr. Grice, you acknowledge that you perjured yourself. Will the room be quiet? The lull came slowly. The contrast between the appearance of this elegant young man and the significant admissions he had just made, admissions which to three-quarters of the persons there meant more, much more than he acknowledged, was certainly such as to provoke interest of the deepest kind. I felt like giving rein to my own feelings, and was not surprised at the patience shown by the coroner. But order was restored at last, and the inquiry proceeded. We are then to consider the testimony given by you this morning as null and void? Yes, so far as it contradicts what I have just stated. Ah, then you will no doubt be willing to give us your evidence again? Certainly, if you will be so kind as to question me. Very well. Where did your wife and yourself first meet after your arrival in New York? In the street near my office. She was coming to see me, but I prevailed upon her to go uptown. What time was this? After ten and before noon, I cannot give the exact hour. And where did you go? To a hotel on Broadway. You have already heard of our visit there. You are, then, the Mr. James Pope, whose wife registered in the books of the Hotel D on the 17th of this month? I have said so. And may I ask for what purpose you used this disguise and allowed your wife to sign a wrong name? To satisfy a freak, she considered it the best way of covering up a scheme she had formed, which was to awaken the interest of my father, under the name and appearance of a stranger, and not to inform him who she was, till he had given some evidence of partiality for her. Ah, but for such an end was it necessary for her to assume a strange name before she saw your father, and for you both to conduct yourselves in the mysterious way you did all that day and evening? I do not know. She thought so, and I humored her. 
I was tired of working against her and was willing she should have her own way for a time. And for this reason you let her fit herself out with clothes, down to her very undergarments? Yes, strange as it may seem, I was just such a fool. I had entered into her scheme, and the means she took to change her personality only amused me. She wished to present herself to my father as a girl obliged to work for her living, and was too shrewd to excite suspicion in the minds of any of the family, by any undue luxury in her apparel. At least that was the excuse she gave me for the precaution she took. Though I think the delight she experienced in anything romantic and unusual had as much to do with it as anything else. She enjoyed the game she was playing and wished to make as much of it as possible. Were her own garments much richer than those she ordered from Altman's? Undoubtedly. Mrs. Van Burnham wore nothing made by American seamstresses. Fine clothes were her weakness. I see, I see. But why such an attempt on your part to keep yourself in the background? Why let your wife write assumed names in the hotel register, for instance, instead of doing it yourself? It was easier for her. I know no other reason. She did not mind putting down the name of Pope. I did. It was an ungracious reflection upon his wife, and he seemed to feel it so, for he almost immediately added, A man will sometimes lend himself to a scheme of which the details are obnoxious. It was so in this case. But she was too interested in her plans to be affected by so small a matter as this. This explained more than one mysterious action on the part of this pair while they were at the Hotel D. The coroner evidently considered it in this light, for he dwelt but little longer on this phase of the case. Passing on to a fact concerning which curiosity has hitherto been roused without receiving any satisfaction. In leaving the hotel, said he, you and your wife were seen carrying certain packages which were missing from your arms when you alighted at Mr. Van Burnham's house. What was in those packages and where did you dispose of them before you entered the second carriage? Howard made no demur in answering. My wife's clothes were in them, said he, and we dropped them somewhere on 27th Street, near 3rd Avenue, just as we saw an old woman coming along the sidewalk. We knew that she would stop and pick them up, and she did, for we slid into a dark shadow made by a projecting stoop and watched her. Is that too simple a method for disposing of certain encumbering bundles to be believed, sir? That is for the jury to decide, answered the coroner stiffly. But why were you so anxious to dispose of these articles? Were they not worth some money, and would it not have been simpler and much more natural? to leave them at the hotel till you chose to send for them? That is, if you were simply engaged in playing, as you say, a game upon your father and not upon the whole community? Yes, Mr. Van Burnham acknowledged, that would have been the natural thing, no doubt. But we were not following natural instincts at the time, but a woman's bizarre caprices. We did, as I said, and laughed long, I assure you, over its unqualified success. For the old woman not only grabbed the packages with avidity, but turned and fled away with them, just as if she had expected this opportunity, and had prepared to make the most of it. It was very laughable, certainly, observed the coroner in a hard voice. You must have found it very ridiculous. 
after giving the witness a look full of something deeper than sarcasm he turned towards the jury as if to ask them what they thought of these very forced and suspicious explanations but they evidently did not know what to think and the coroner's looks flew back to the witness who of all the persons present seemed the least impressed by the position in which he stood mr van burnam said he you showed a great deal of feeling this morning at being confronted with your wife's hat why was this and why did you wait till you saw this evidence of her presence on the scene of death to acknowledge the facts you have been good enough to give us this afternoon if i had a lawyer by my side you would not ask me that question or if you did i would not be allowed to answer it but i have no lawyer here and so i will say that i was greatly shocked by the catastrophe which has happened to my wife and under the stress of my first overpowering emotions had the impulse to hide the fact that the victim of so dreadful a mischance was my wife i thought that if no connection was found between myself and this dead woman i would stand in no danger of the suspicion which must cling to the man who came into the house with her but like most first impulses it was a foolish one and gave way under the strain of investigation i however persisted in it as long as possible partially because my disposition is an obstinate one and partially because i hated to acknowledge myself a fool but when i saw that hat and recognized it as an indisputable proof of her presence in the van burnam house that night my confidence in the attempt i was making broke down all at once i could deny her shape her hands and even the scar which she might have had in common with other women but i could not deny her hat too many persons had seen her wear it but the coroner was not to be so readily imposed upon i see i see he repeated with great dryness and i hope the jury will be satisfied and they probably will unless they remember the anxiety which according to your story was displayed by your wife to have her whole outfit in keeping with her appearance as a working girl if she was so particular as to think it necessary to dress herself in store-made undergarments why make all these precautions void by carrying into the house a hat with the name of an expensive milliner inside it women are inconsistent sir she liked the hat and hated to part with it she thought she could hide it somewhere in the great house at least that was what she said to me when she tucked it under her cape the coroner who evidently did not believe one word of this stared at the witness as if curiosity was fast taking the place of indignation and i did not wonder howard van burnam as thus presented to our notice by his own testimony was an anomaly whether we were to believe what he was saying at the present time or what he had said during the morning session but i wished i had had the questioning of him his next answer however opened up one dark place into which i had been peering for some time without any enlightenment it was in reply to the following query all this said the coroner is very interesting but what explanation have you to give for taking your wife into your father's empty house at an hour so late and then leaving her to spend the best part of the dark night alone none said he that will strike you as sensible and judicious but we were not sensible that night neither were we judicious or i would not be standing here trying to explain what is not explainable by any of the ordinary rules of conduct 
She was set upon being the first to greet my father on his entrance into his own home, and her first plan had been to do so in her own proper character as my wife. But afterwards the freak took her, as I have said, to personify the housekeeper whom my father had cabled us to have in waiting at his house, a cablegram which had reached us too late for any practical use, and which we had therefore ignored and fearing he might come early in the morning before she could be on hand to make the favorable impression she intended, she wished to be left in the house that night, and I humored her. I did not foresee the suffering that my departure might cause her, or the fears that were likely to spring from her lonely position in so large and empty a dwelling. Or rather, I should say, she did not foresee them for she begged me not to stay with her when I hinted at the darkness and dreariness of the place, saying that she was too jolly to feel, fear, or think of anything but the surprise my father and sisters would experience in discovering that their very agreeable young housekeeper was the woman they had so long despised. And why, persisted the coroner, edging forward in his interest, and so allowing me to catch a glimpse of Mr. Grice's face, as he too leaned forward in his anxiety to hear every word that fell from this remarkable witness. Why do you speak of her fear? What reason have you to think she suffered apprehension after your departure? Why? echoed the witness, as if astounded by the other's lack of perspicacity. Did she not kill herself in a moment of terror and discouragement? Leaving her as I did, in a condition of health and good spirits, can you expect me to attribute her death to any other cause than a sudden attack of frenzy caused by terror? Ah, exclaimed the coroner in a suspicious tone, which no doubt voiced the feelings of most people present. Then you think your wife committed suicide? Most certainly, replied the witness, avoiding but two pairs of eyes in the whole crowd, those of his father and brother. With a hat-pin, continued the coroner, letting his hitherto scarcely suppressed irony become fully visible in his voice and manner, thrust into the back of her neck at a spot young ladies surely would have but little reason to know is particularly fatal, suicide, when she was found crushed under a pile of bric-a-brac which was thrown down or fell upon her hours after she received the fatal thrust, I do not know how else she could have died, persisted the witness calmly, unless she opened the door to some burglar. And what burglar would kill a woman in that way, when he could pound her with his fists? No, she was frenzied and stabbed herself in desperation, or the thing was done by accident, God knows how. And as for the testimony of the experts, well, we all know how easily the wisest of them can be mistaken, even in matters of as serious import as these. If all the experts in the world, here his voice rose and his nostrils dilated, till his aspect was actually commanding and impressed us all like a sudden transformation. If all the experts in the world were to swear that those shelves were thrown upon her, after she had lain therefore four hours dead, I would not believe them. Appearances or no appearances, blood or no blood, I here declare that she pulled that cabinet over in her death struggle, and upon the truth of this fact I am ready to rest my honor as a man and my integrity as her husband. 
An uproar immediately followed, amid which could be heard cries of, "'He lies! He's a fool!' The attitude taken by the witness was so unexpected that the most callous person present could not fail to be affected by it. But curiosity is as potent a passion as surprise, and in a few minutes all was still again, and everybody intent to hear how the coroner would answer these asseverations. "'I have heard of a blind man denying the existence of light,' said the gentleman, "'but never before of a sensible being like yourself, "'urging the most untenable theories in face of such evidence "'as has been brought before us during this inquiry. "'If your wife committed suicide, "'or if the entrance of the point of a hat-pin into her spine "'was effected by accident, "'how comes the head of the pin?' to have been found so many feet away from her and in such a place as the parlor register. It may have flown there when it broke, or, what is much more probable, been kicked there by some of the many people who passed in and out of the room between the time of her death and that of its discovery. But the register was found closed, urged the coroner. Was it not, Mr. Grice? That person thus appealed to rose for an instant. It was, said he, and deliberately sat down again. The face of the witness, which had been singularly free from expression since his last vehement outbreak, clouded over for an instant, and his eye fell, as if he felt himself engaged in an unequal struggle. But he recovered his courage speedily, and quietly observed, The register may have been closed by a passing foot. I have known of stranger coincidences than that. Mr. Van Burnham, asked the coroner, as if weary of subterfuges and argument, have you considered the effect which this highly contradictory evidence of yours is likely to have on your reputation? I have. And are you ready to accept the consequences? If any especial consequences follow, I must accept them, sir. When did you lose the keys which you say you have not now in your possession? This morning you asserted that you did not know, but perhaps this afternoon you may like to modify that statement. I lost them after I left my wife shut up in my father's house. Soon? Very soon. How soon? Within an hour, I should judge. How do you know it was so soon? I missed them at once. Where were you when you missed them? I don't know. Somewhere. I was walking the streets, as I have said. I don't remember just where I was when I thrust my hands in my pocket and found the keys gone. You do not? No. But it was within an hour after leaving the house. Yes. Very good. The keys have been found. The witness started, started so violently that his teeth came together with a click loud enough to be heard over the whole room. Have they, he said with an effort at nonchalance, which, however, failed to deceive anyone who noticed his change of color. You can tell me, then, where I lost them. They were found, said the coroner, in their usual place above your brother's desk in Duane Street. Oh, murmured the witness, utterly taken aback or appearing so, I cannot account for their being found in the office. I was so sure I dropped them in the street. I did not think you could account for it, quietly observed the coroner, and without another word he dismissed the witness, 
who staggered to a seat as remote as possible from the one where he had previously been sitting between his father and brother. End of chapter 14「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.